You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Adrian Florido. And Adrian, you and I have been talking about this idea of the good immigrant, and I'm using Gene's air quotes right now. <laughs> I can see him. I can see his quotes. And the bad immigrant. Yeah, and as we all know pretty well, so so have some presidential candidates. There are at least two million, two million, think of it, criminal aliens now inside of our country. Two million people, criminal aliens. That just sounds so scary, Shireen. Yeah, and we know Trump has been focused on the bad, right? We're not... Yeah. That's not rocket science. But he's not the only one. Right. Other politicians have been doing it too, but they just do it a little bit differently. We should be deporting criminals, not hardworking immigrant families who do the very best they can and often are keeping economies going in many places in our country. That's why over the past six years, deportations of criminals are up 80%. And that's why we're going to keep focusing enforcement resources on actual threats to our security. Felons, not families. Criminals, not children. Just in case you couldn't tell, that was Hillary Clinton and then President Obama. And let's just listen to that last bit from President Obama one more time. Felons, not families. Criminals, not children. So that seems pretty cut and dry. But you know what? It's not. And in this episode of Code Switch, we're going to talk about good immigrants, bad immigrants, and why most people are not truly one or the other. We're going to talk with a so-called dreamer about why that frame of the good immigrant, young, innocent, educated, no longer feels quite right to her. And then we're going to hear from a law professor who explains how our perception of immigrants matters and how that can change policy and lives. But first, Adrian, you have the story of how complicated things get when you're an immigrant who's both a felon and a family man. Right. And we're going to start in Tijuana, Mexico. I went there a little under two weeks ago to meet this guy named Jose Alvarez. That's the sound of me walking through the turnstiles at the border crossing from San Diego to Tijuana, by the way. So I crossed the border on foot, and he picked me up there in an old pickup truck. Hola, ¿cómo está? So I went to see Jose because his story illustrates this shift that's happening in the immigrant rights movement right now. For a long time, the face of the immigrant rights movement has been these immigrants who went to college or served with distinction in the military, immigrants whose parents brought them as children, you know, these so-called dreamers. But Jose isn't any of those things. In fact, he's actually got a criminal record. And he's here in Tijuana now because earlier this year he got deported. Uh, still, he's become this cause for grassroots groups who are trying to change this whole narrative about which immigrants deserve to stay in the U.S. All right, so after picking me up at the border, José drove me about 30 minutes to basically the farthest outskirts of Tijuana. To a hilly, unplanned part of the city where paved streets start turning into unpaved streets. He's staying in a house owned by a family member. Since José was deported in February, he hasn't had a whole lot to do. So he's been fixing this house up, painting it. It looks really nice. He said he's tried to make it nice because his wife and kids drive down from Long Beach outside of L.A. to visit him every other weekend. His whole family, his wife and six kids, they're all U.S. citizens. So he and I sat on the patio in front of the house to talk. And it only took about a minute into our interview for José to be overcome by emotion and tears when he started telling me about his family. 
a ella ya, pues, los hijos todos nacieron allá, pues. porque cuando estaba muchacho yo pensé en la familia, que allá, que allá se oye mejor, pues. José says he went to California when he was younger because there was more opportunity there. And all of his children were born there, and he thinks they had a better life because of it. But it hasn't been easy. His story is complicated, and you need to hear the details to understand why. So Jose first came illegally to the U.S. in 1979. Seven years later, 1986, this huge immigration law passes that gives amnesty to millions of immigrants living in the U.S. illegally. So now Jose was legal. He got a green card. He had a few kids. He was working in a dry cleaner, and then in 1995, he said a guy he knew asked him to help him move some drugs, some crystal meth. And José is pretty straight up about this. He says he agreed to help him, and they got caught. And José was convicted of two drug charges, and he spent more than three years in prison. He says when he got out in 1999, they took his green card away, and they deported him. But he crossed the border back to California again almost immediately to reunite with his family. And from that time on, he had a pretty normal life, as normal as you can have if you're in the country illegally. He worked, and he and his wife bought a house. One of his sons actually became a Marine. Okay, so now fast forward to this past February. This is the key moment. Jose is picking his son up from work in Long Beach, and he gets pulled over for a broken taillight. And to make a long story short, the officer learns that immigration officials want to talk to Jose, so he turns him over to them. And by the next morning, just a few hours later, Jose has been deported again. Jose says that immigration agents drove him to Tijuana in a van. And on the way, one of the agents asked him, wow, you've been here for 20 years without any problems? And Jose told the agent, yeah, I, I work. Okay, so this is where the idea that we talked about earlier of the Obama administration saying it deports felons, not families, this is where Jose really runs out of luck. Because the government places Jose on the bad side of that line. Even if he has a family and served his time, the fact that he's a convicted felon and had been previously deported is what matters. And he's actually permanently barred from coming back to the U.S. ever because of laws that were passed in the 80s and 90s. And so, remember how we were saying earlier that grassroots groups are trying to change the narrative about who gets to stay and who has to go? They're trying to make an example of Jose. This is a person who, day in and day out, would bring home the daily bread, right? This is from a press conference outside of Immigration and Customs Enforcement's office in L.A. just a few days ago. This is a person who, you know, cared for his family. This is a person who, you know, was, was a... Um, model citizen and none of this mattered because of a 21 year old conviction so while activists are making noise about this case lawyers are also working on it my name is jessica bansell jessica bansell represents jose alvarez she works for a group called the national day labor organizing network ndlon for short and it's trying to get jose back into the country one of the things that's compelling to us about mr alvarez's case is He's a person who's so much more than this one conviction, and it seems 
obvious in his case, partly because the conviction is so old and partly because in every other way, he really is sort of this model of the good immigrant and the good bad immigrant. So it sort of problematizes this idea that you can make this good bad distinction by looking at someone's criminal history. Jessica's group, Endilon, says they know that Jose Alvarez is not the most sympathetic case. But actually, that's exactly why Endilon is taking on this case. It's about principle. One of our main principles has always been that if you can fight for the people who are like most marginalized, most at the edge, to lift up the rights of everybody, then then you have the broadest victory. It's harder, but then when you win, it's like really a broad victory. Um, and so, I think partly for that reason, like if you win Jose Alvarez's case, you do win for a lot more people um, than if you win for the valedictorian of Harvard. So that's Jose's story, Shireen. Mm-hmm. He's waiting in Tijuana as his lawyer puts together a case that she hopes will convince immigration officials to let him back into the U.S. through this little carve-out called humanitarian parole. I contacted Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they told me that petitions for parole are case-by-case, case, but that it's generally an extraordinary measure. They also told me that under their current policy, Jose's criminal and deportation history make him a level one case, a top priority for deportation. And Jose's case seems like it could be tough for his lawyers to win. Come on, Adrian. It's hard to change a narrative. Yep. This good and bad frame is ages old. Journalists use it all the time. Mm. There's a reason lawyers and advocates are drawn to the most exceptional plaintiffs. No parking tickets, straight-A students. They're clearly sympathetic characters. Well, next up, we're going to talk with someone who is a sympathetic character. At least she is within this whole debate about immigration policy. But, you know, she has mixed feelings about that. That's coming up after the break. Stay with us. A quick shout out to one of our sponsors who brings you this message. Casper, an online mattress retailer. The Casper mattress is designed, developed in the USA, and engineered for comfort. They use two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, to give you just the right amount of sink and bounce. And they have a risk-free trial. Try out your Casper mattress for 100 nights with free delivery and returns, along with a special offer for listeners. Go to casper.com slash codeswitch and use the promo code CODESWITCH to redeem $50 towards a Casper mattress. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, before we get back to the show, here in the U.S., the second presidential debate takes place on Sunday, October 9th. And the next morning, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them. They'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every debate, so you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class. Whatever your morning routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it the morning of October 10th after the presidential debate. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. We're back. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Adrian Florido. And now, Adrian, you're going to introduce us to Edna Monroy. Yeah. And as we said before, in the past 10 years or so, dreamers have been the most sympathetic characters that the immigrant rights groups have put forward. Uh, Edna is a dreamer. She came to the U.S. illegally as a child to reunite with her family. And at this point, she no longer faces the threat of deportation because of President Obama's 2012 program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which basically allowed a lot of young immigrants like her to stay and work. 
but she's also an activist for other immigrants. So I asked her how she feels about the term dreamer today. It definitely romanticized um, a movement that has definitely way uh, evolved, uh, way, way, way. <laughs> We're in 2016, about to go into 2017. Uh, the federal Dream Act failed in 2010. Uh, I guess people that would have qualified for the federal Dream Act then, hence dreamers, um, we are obviously no longer priority for deportation. Many of us qualify for DACA. Um, deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. For Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, exactly, that passed in 2012. Do you think that the, um, that the term dreamer elevated some people at the expense of others within the broader immigrant rights movement? Mm -hmm. Of course, because it completely disregards other struggles, other identities. So where do they go? You know, they don't fit this... Um, oh, American narrative, high achieving, know it all, or like, you know, hardcore, straight A student, you know, they don't, you know. And so how do we also ensure that their lives and their stories are at the core, you know, at the center of our movement? So one of the things that we're trying to understand in this episode is kind of, you know, how the immigrant rights movement's strategies are informed by like broader perceptions about immigrants and immigration and sort of who are the faces and who who has to take a back seat and stuff like that. Um, do you think someone like Jose, who was convicted of a, of a drug charge, you know, 20 years ago, do you think someone like him should be a face of the new movement? Yeah, he is. I feel he definitely is. Um, even though he's no longer here, right? But his life doesn't end there, you know? His struggle doesn't end there. And that's that's what I mean by um, creating more visibility about the entire picture, the, the bigger picture, you know? You is that know? risky as a strategy for, for the movement? I think it makes us stronger. It makes us more diverse. It keeps us grounded, you know, as opposed to, like, deny it or try to hide. It's like... No, because we are human. If anything, we show how human we are. You know, so much of the narrative around immigrants right now in this political season is is about immigrants as criminals, right? And I'm wondering, do you think by highlighting stories like Jose's, other people who have past convictions, um, and making them new faces of the movement, you might actually inadvertently be giving people who are trying to push that narrative more um, ammunition? I mean, come on. Again, who are we trying to please? Like Trump, Hillary? Like, who are we trying to please? You know, like, it's important to not get caught up with that. You know, like, electing someone into office is not going to stop deportations, really. You know, it's not. So that real change and that real strong, self-sustainable change is going to come from the bottom up. And they're part of our movement. They're part of these new emerging movement, diverse, intersectional, intentional movement that instead of denying or trying to pretend this thing didn't happen, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what led Jose to do this. Uh, Edna Monroy, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. So that's Edna. She fought for so-called dreamers like herself. But now she thinks it's time to change the narrative about immigrants who aren't necessarily dreamers. Okay, so to this point, we're going to hear from one more person before we go. His name is Cesar Cuauhtémoc García Hernández. He's a law professor, and he writes a blog called Crimigration. He's someone who's thought a lot about how our perception of immigrants is influenced by our policies for dealing with them, uh, and vice versa. So take, for example, 
how many immigrants end up in detention these days. The unmistakable symbolism of migrants locked up is that these people pose a threat to the United States. As you can maybe tell, Cesar is a critic of current immigration policy, in part because he thinks that it aggravates negative perceptions people already have of immigrants who are here illegally. They are so dangerous that the only way that we as a country, as we as a society, can manage that threat is by capturing them and putting them in mostly isolated detention centers where they are under lock and key and they are being watched because that's what we do with people who pose a danger to our very existence as a political community, our way of life. And and some politicians turn around and they can point to that as examples of how they're being tough. So like Cesar, most immigrant advocates would obviously disagree with this vision. But nonetheless, they have to respond to it, right? And Cesar said that is where you start to see divisions among advocacy organizations, especially when they're figuring out how to talk about immigrants who actually do have criminal records. The large, uh, politically well-connected mainstream advocacy organizations that are based in Washington, D.C., were for many years very reticent to advocate on behalf of anyone who encountered the criminal justice system. The D.C.-based rhetoric was that migrants are not criminals, when the reality is that, well, migrants are criminals, just like U.S. citizens are sometimes criminals. In any community of millions of people, you are going to have some people who engage in reprehensible behavior. Um, And grassroots organizations, to their great credit, have been very clear for years that their stance is to take migrants as the whole imperfect human beings that they are. So if this sounds like a big theoretical exercise, like a conversation that's happening up in the clouds, I mean, to some extent it is. But it's also a conversation with real consequences for the immigrant rights movement right now, because as we speak, they're gearing up to start fighting for an immigration reform bill again once the new president takes office. And in the past, there's been a lot of disagreement among immigrant advocates about who should benefit from reform. Should folks with criminal records benefit? Folks with felonies like Jose Alvarez or only people with misdemeanors? Only straight-A students? Everyone else? Who's deserving and who's not? Who's good? and who's bad. Okay, that's where we'll leave this. Uh, And by the way, I'm here in the studio alone now because uh, Shireen got a little sick while we were working on this episode. So uh, I guess I'll just read the credits all by myself. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at NPR Codeswitch. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Rand Abdel-Fattah and Walter Ray Watson produced this episode with original music by Ramtin Arablui. Special thanks to Morning Edition intern Luke Vanderplug for help gathering tape. And thanks to the rest of the Code Switch team, Gene Demby, Karen Griffey-Bates, Kat Chow, Iman Smith, and Leah Danella. Shireen, feel better soon. And I'm Adrian Florido. See you later. Thank you.